Welcome back to the Warts and All podcast. I'm Susie Edge, medical doctor, historian, and I'm just fascinated by how we've treated the human body in life and in death, but let's face it, mostly in death. The Warts and All podcast, we're into episode, is it three or is it four? I shouldn't have lost count already. I think it's because I um, I did a trailer and then started numbering wrong. But anyway, we're on to Henry I of England and his death. We'll get to that soon. But first of all, where are we now? It's the 31st of March. It's chucking it down outside here in the northeast of Scotland. I know it's quite nice down in England, but mm-mm, we've got the yucky weather up here. So we're still stuck inside. We are anyway. It's been a whole year since the first lockdown in the UK. And yep, we're still at home. It's beginning to look like it's going to open up a wee bit soon. And when it does, we're going to have a lot of visitors here in the Highlands because most people are going to be staying Uh, in the UK and are going to want to come to amazing places like this. And that's cool. I've been planning a trip myself, bit of history, few videos, get onto YouTube properly. That's what I plan to do. Uh, So that's going to be coming in the summer. But it depends what we can do, where we can go. We'll see what happens. You may have noticed that there are no sponsorships talked about on this podcast. I think it's the only podcast that I've ever heard without sponsorship. Uh, The only reason for that is because I haven't got round to it yet. I wanted to get it out and establish it first and see how we were doing. And now, yep, we've got thousands of downloads and listeners and airtime on YouTube as well. And it's looking really good. So in terms of sponsorship, if you're interested, then, uh, then do get in touch and we can have a chat about that. Onwards then to Henry I of England. Henry I, son of William the Conqueror, younger brother of William II, William Rufus, he had a nickname too, but we don't hear it used as often. He was known as Henry Beauclerk, so named because he was literate and educated, a well-read chap, one might say. He was more of a diplomat than the fighter his brother William Rufus was. Maybe that should go in the arguments against Henry assassinating his big brother in the New Forest in 1100. During Henry's reign, the death of William Rufus was put down to an accidental arrow in the chest. I'm not going to sit on the fence. I reckon Henry was behind his brother's death to take the throne of England. Of course, it is easy to accuse someone of murder when they've been dead for 900 years. After his brother's demise and his very quick departure for Winchester, he went onwards to his coronation in London only a couple of days later. Henry I was 32 years old when he took the crown as King of England, and he ruled for the next 35 years. Yes, we are here to talk about the death of Henry I, but I think one needs the context of his life to do that, especially when the records of monarchs' deaths are often used as commentaries or even attacks on them and their reigns, even long after they've gone. I mean, I'm guilty of doing that myself in the introduction. So much was written about the time of Henry's reign, The monastic chroniclers felt that Henry's court was far more wholesome than his big brother's licentious court had been. There's even a fair bit out there discussing his death. A surfeit of lampreys became the phrase used to describe the the death of Henry I, and it is one often remembered even by schoolchildren who may not remember anything else about Henry. Hold your slippery lampreys, we'll get to them a bit later. First, Henry's life. Born in Selby in about 1068, Henry Beauclerk, that well-known Yorkshireman, grew up to, well, do his bit for England, shall we say. And by that I mean Henry had relations with any woman who passed by. 
As a result, he was known for having at least 24 children. Only two of them were legitimate, his son and heir, William, and his daughter, Matilda. They were born of his marriage to Matilda of Scotland, also known as Edith, obviously. Marrying Matilda of Scotland meant that he married not just the daughter of Malcolm III, Canmore, and Margaret of Wessex, but she was the Pearl of Scotland, Saint Margaret, and she was also the brother to Edgar the Atheling, the last male member of the House of Wessex. It was a good political match. Away from his marriage, though, nine of Henry's illegitimate children were married off to various royal houses of Europe when he became king. He used them as offerings in his diplomatic dealings. Henry's children did not all end up with happy endings, so we're going to talk about the White Ship disaster. The event played a huge role in what was to become of the line of succession after Henry's death. It was a freezing cold but calm night in November 1120. Henry and his family and 250 of his nobles were due to travel across the Channel to England. A man called Henry Fitzstephen stepped forward. His father's ship, years before, had been used to convey William of Normandy, Henry's father, across the Channel. And he asked that he could do the same for the conqueror's son. Henry had already made plans and did not wish to deviate from them. But sure, his son, William, his heir and the others, they could travel across on the white ship if they so wished. The travelling party were in the mood for a party and the wine started to flow. Soon the passengers and crew alike were heavily under the influence, singing songs, dancing, making TikToks. Orders were given that the ship be sailed as fast as possible to try and race the ship that Henry I had set sail in hours before. Just out of the harbour of Barfleur, the ship struck a rock. Oh Lord, what a shock. If you get that reference, I'll send you cookies. Uh, the ship capsized. On that calm but very cold night in November, all but one of the souls that had been aboard the white ship died in the icy waters. When one is thrown into icy waters, even in calm seas, the physiological responses of the body can be rapidly lethal. The first response to hitting the water can be cold water shock, which causes a sudden loss of control over breathing. When the body hits the water, the first automatic response is to take one or more huge gasps, and that is then followed by hyperventilation or an increase in the rate of breathing. The gasp may well mean that water is inhaled into the lungs, which would impinge gas exchange. With the sudden reduction in oxygen getting into the blood, the body's response would be to increase breathing rate even further. This initial response to the cold water is uncontrollable. And then the blood vessels will contract, increasing blood pressure and the heart rate as well. More than that, the cold water around the ears can bring on vertigo and disorientation, worsened in this scenario by the passengers of the white ship being drunk on the wine. In these dark waters, they might have struggled to differentiate between up and down. Some of the passengers aboard the white ship may have succumbed to cold water shock immediately. If the passengers and crew survived the initial plunge into the water and the cold water shock, then without rescue, over time, they would have succumbed to hypothermia. Hundreds died in this way when the white ship hit the rock. One survivor, who was said to have been wrapped in a sheepskin coat, clung to a rock and survived the night. He was a butcher from Rouen named Berold. He wasn't part of the nobles' party. he just followed them onto the boat to try and recoup the money that he said he was owed, and he ended up in this disaster. He was the only one left to tell the tale that... At first, he saw the heir to the throne, who had not died in the waters immediately, had been moved to a small vessel where he might have been safe, but the young heir heard his sister's cries and went back to find her. 
only for the small boat to be surrounded by those already in the water who, when they all tried to clamber aboard to safety, capsized also, dragging them all under. Cries were said to have been heard from the shore, but they were put down to the revellers having a noisy, alcohol fueled night of fun aboard the boat. When the dust settled, well, that's the wrong analogy for a sinking ship, um, okay, when it was all over, nobody could bring themselves to tell Henry the news. A young boy was pushed forward to tell the king that he'd lost his at least four of his children that night and so many of his family's closest nobles. The issue of his issue was now in question. Henry I holds the record for having the most children, and yet his death sparked a succession problem because his male heir had gone down with the white ship. And despite remarrying, because Matilda the Good Queen had died in 1118, Henry didn't have any more legitimate children. Despite having his nobles, or whoever was left of them, swear allegiance to Matilda as Queen of England after his death, it did not quite happen how he imagined it would. With these questions still up in the air, Henry grew anxious and paranoid for his life. He had, after all, once survived an assassination attempt by his own daughter, after agreeing to blind his granddaughters in payment for the loss of sight of another child. Julianne, their mother, went for Henry with a crossbow. I can't blame her. Now he was worried. He would move beds often, and he increased the royal guard around him. He slept with a sword and shield nearby, in case he should be attacked in the night. He frequently had nightmares of being so attacked. And despite his paranoia, well, or maybe because of it, Henry reigned for longer than any previous English king. Henry was 67 years old in November of 1135. He was reasonably fit for his great age of the time, though it was written he had grown a little fatter. I think we might forgive him that at the age of 67. He'd been out hunting during the day. It was time for a feast past those lampreys, a surfeit of them, if you please. Lampreys are eel-like. They aren't actually eels, but it's the easiest way to describe them. They're parasitic, jawless fish that attach themselves to other fish, like salmon and trout. To be honest, I'd rather eat the salmon, but Henry, he had other ideas. A surfeit of lampreys is, well, it's a lot of them. So many of them that it, this represents that it was what happens when you keep having those things which are too good. Punishment awaits the glutton. The suggestion being that Henry brought this on himself through foolish overindulgence and gluttony. He ignored the advice of his doctors, or so they said, once he'd gone, probably to distance themselves from the manner of his illness. But he knocked those lampreys back anyway. Hmm, lovely lampreys. It's mostly thought that salmonella, or another bacteria, was passed via the fish to the king's gut. Infection leads to stomach cramps, diarrhoea, which can be bloody fevers, nausea, vomiting, chills, headache. It can manifest within a few hours or can take a few days. When looking at your plate piled up of lampreys, you can't see salmonella bacteria or smell them or taste them. So if they're there, you might just keep eating them. People or animals living around Henry could have carried the salmonella bacteria in their intestines and expelled them in their feces, spreading them into the foods they might handle. It might have been his cook preparing the lampreys had not washed his hands well and passed on these germs. The surgeon Clifford Brewer, in his book The Death of Kings, argued that the king fell ill far too soon after eating the lampreys. Infection, he said, would have taken a bit longer to manifest. He suggests it was more likely an immediate illness brought on by 
the perforation of a gastric ulcer, perhaps, leading to a peritonitis, which could account for the fever and vomiting. He wouldn't expect the onset of illness to be quite so rapid as it was, had it been a build-up of salmonella been the king's downfall. An infection with salmonella, though, can manifest symptoms within a few hours, and the symptoms of abdominal pain, diarrhoea and fever can suggest a few possible diagnoses. Of course, the surgeon might well be simply seeing a surgical problem, and a physician might argue for the infection diagnosis. One could argue either way. Henry died on the 1st of December in 1135. After Henry's death, his body had quite a trip. Of course it did, you would expect nothing else of me. Henry had asked that when he died, he be buried at Reading Abbey, which he had founded. He'd paid the monks there to pray for his father's soul and for the salvation of his own. Reading Abbey became a magnificent church and religious community. It was one of the largest monasteries in Europe. It's in ruin now. It can be found in the centre of the town of Reading, in the English county town of Berkshire. Why Reading? William of Malmesbury tells us that it was strategic geographically a place calculated for the reception of almost all who might have occasion to travel to more populous cities of England. And so that's where Henry wanted his final resting place to be. The problem was that Henry died on the other side of the English Channel. It was not going to be easy to get his whole body back to England and on to Reading before things started to turn sour. They set about preparing his body for his final journey. Firstly, they took out his intestines and they were buried nearby at the priory at Notre-Dame-du-Pré at Rouen. There was a story that the man given the task of removing his brain supposedly collapsed due to the grimness of the task. The corpse soon started to smell bad. They rubbed his intestines with a scented balm and they covered him in ox hides. Then onwards to the coast, but it was December, the weather was terrible and for four weeks they could not sail across the channel. The king's body lay all that time and the putrefaction took over. Black juices started to spill out onto the floor below and the stench of decay seeped out through the ox hides. I was asked in a TikTok comment if this was the Mandela effect because the commenter had, and I quote, never heard of this before. Now I'm not really sure that's how the Mandela effect works. Just because you've not heard of something before doesn't mean to say you can attribute it to that effect. These stories were written hundreds of years ago and passed down through multiple history books. But the comments of decay, so vivid in the descriptions of the death of, well, both Henry I and his father, William, before him, should not really be taken at face value. Wonderfully gruesome stories as they are on their own, they represent so much more. They tell us what was thought of the kings they were writing about and tell us about who was writing the stories. It was thought that a good deceased person's body resists decay. So such stinking, revolting decay described of these men is suggestive of moral corruption. It was their fate that their bodies deserved in death. Henry I's Reading Abbey was closed on the orders of Henry VIII. The monks were sent packing, the abbot was executed, the valuable possessions were taken by Henry VIII. So Henry I's burial place in front of the high altar, was left to ruin. That burial place may well be under the site of a Victorian prison, well known to Oscar Wilde, or maybe even the car park outside. So much development has happened in the hundreds of years since the monastery was closed. Whatever of Henry I made it back from Normandy is somewhere under there. What? 
Another king under a car park. Can you imagine if we found the remains of another king under a car park? We would very soon be accused of being careless. That's it for this week. That was the death of Henry I of England. We don't know where his body is, not really. But we do know a lot about what happened to it on its way from Rouen to Reading. Thank you for listening for this week. Next up, we've got the death of Stephen and what happened to him. Thank you for listening to this podcast and all the downloads. I really appreciate it. So many comments and I keep getting asked to do more and I'm trying really hard, but there's a lot going on. A lot of exciting things are happening. You can get in touch with me on TikTok at Susie Edge, S-U-Z-I-E-E-D-G-E, or on Instagram at Suze.Edge. I'm on YouTube as well. I definitely do have plans to make more YouTube content that's coming. So please do subscribe to that channel. And as usual, I really do appreciate your company. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again soon on the Watson All podcast. Bye bye.